Luke 15, if you go ahead and open up. If you all want to come down and sit with your families, you can. If you want to stay where you are, that's fine too. Luke chapter 15. We're going to be looking at the parable of the prodigal son. But I want to take the chapter as a whole. There's a section of three parables. Uh, and I think the first two help us to understand the third one. I also wanted to say thank you. Uh, some of you know us. Uh, we were here for about six years. Uh, worked with the youth. Worked with families. Uh, y'all helped raise our children. Uh, and we thank you just for your care for us and for our ministry. Uh, we've moved to Columbia, South America as missionaries in January. This past year we've been there for six months. My wife is graduating, so we're, we're here to celebrate. and We're doing some missions transition, but also just to see you. So we thank you. Uh, our kids, I know, they're the most important part. They should be here next week for church. So uh, thank you for those of you who've been asking, praying for us, sending us letters. Uh, I mean it with the letters. Uh, those make hard days so much better. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, just this past week, uh, we've, we've been here for a little while, but this past week we were uh, at what's called SIM Go. If you're going towards Charlotte and you take Choate, uh, right there there's, a, there's an organization that says, you know, uh, by prayer since 1893. And we've been going through training with them, and that's where we were this past week. And it was neat. It was neat to see, uh, to talk with missionaries who have been missionaries for 20 years, even though they started being missionaries. There's, there's, one, there's one guy, he was a math teacher, just at a local school. Taught for 19 years, and then felt that God was calling him to the mission field. And he's like, but I'm, he, these are his words, but I'm old. Uh, but God called him anyways, and he moved his whole family to Africa and taught there for 20 years. <laughs> uh, and it was one of the, uh, some of the people that graduated from that missionary school, both Africans uh, and, and missionary kids, uh, one of them is an aerospace engineer. One of them, I mean, it's really neat. And he was just a really good math teacher that chose to, to dedicate his life, the second half of his life, uh, to missions. And, you know, seeing different people like that, I, it was great to hear their story and, and, and for us to go through the training. So that was a real blessing. Um, but we look forward this week. If, if there's anything we can do, if we can get together with you, we'd love to do so. Uh, just please let us know. Luke chapter 15, let's read through it together, and then we'll pray. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathered around to hear him, that is Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. He calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who do not need to repent. Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp and sweep under the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger son, the younger one, said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living after he had spent everything. There was a severe famine 
in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. He came near the house. He heard the music and the dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving away for you, never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now is found. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this beautiful parable which points us to the love of of the Father, particularly the love of a parent on a day when we celebrate parents. God, as we study your word, I pray that you would get me out of the way, that you would speak through my mumblings, that you would convict our hearts, transform us, restore us to a right relationship with our Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Keep your Bibles open. I'm, I'm the kind of guy that if you're, if you're looking through it, I, I feel like you're... Yeah. You'll be able to pick things out uh, even when I mess up. Uh, so if you've got your Bible, please feel free to follow along with me. Uh, we are missionaries in Colombia, not the city, but the country, South America. And the typical uh, story in Colombia for the past 45, 50 years has been something like this. Uh, you're making some good changes. You, you progress in your business. Your business starts to expand or you're a pastor and, and your church begins to grow because you're preaching the gospel or, or you start a school because you want to see good education for kids in your town or in your city. So there's people who are actively trying to bring good to their communities. But once you start succeeding, sometimes you become a threat to other people. If your business starts growing, that means someone else's business isn't doing as well or If you're the pastor, that means other people are jealous because people are coming to your church. Or if you start a school, that means that you're denouncing the fact that the public school system isn't as good as it should be. And so sometimes these people who feel jealous will denounce you to the guerrillas or the paramilitary group. I'm not talking about the monkeys. Uh, There's there's an armed group uh, that for years has been uh, fighting for freedom. Uh, in Colombia. Recently, there was a peace process that was signed, but for many years, violence was the, the, the standard 
in Colombia. And so, because you're denounced to these armed groups, they either, <laughs> they either kidnap you and your family and tell you to stop what you're doing, or to pay them back for whoever they kidnap, or they extort you. If you have a business that's being successful, they say, well, fine, you have to pay taxes to us for protection, so we won't destroy your business. Or, as you heard in the story last week, they'll stick a gun to what your mother said and tell you to either get out of town or it'll be her. This is a standard story that happens to many, many families. They say statistically about up to, up to 60% of the country has been displaced by violence, which is mean they've had to leave their hometown and go somewhere else. It's a standard story. Or you're traveling down the road and there's a roadblock, and just to make an example of you, of you they either kidnap you or rob you in the best case scenario, or kill you in the worst case. This happened on a daily basis to people there. Now a peace process has been signed, and so things are supposed to get better, but I want you to pause and think for a second. Stick yourself in the life of a person there. You're a pastor of a church, or you're a member of a church who was oppressed. You may have lost a family member. You may have uh, lost uh, your business because it was destroyed. Something happened to you. And all of a sudden, I want you to imagine you're sitting here and the person who brought you suffering walks through that door. That one. And sits down somewhere here. What would you do? You're the pastor of the church that preaches and says, you know, we're supposed to forgive. But if you lost your mother to that person who walks, what do you do? Do you keep preaching forgiveness? And if so, how in the world do you do it? Today we're looking at a text that says that because God seeks and saves sinners, one, we should seek the embrace of a father, but two, we should rejoice when someone is restored. But how do we rejoice when someone who brought us suffering is reunited with their father, the God of the universe? Now that's a situation that seems far away, but I want you to stick it here and close. There are people who have made your family suffer. Or maybe just you suffer. Or someone you know suffers. And we remember, don't we? Especially in a time like COVID. We remember. And when you sit in the pews next to those people, what is your response? They didn't even kill a member of your family, but still there's something there. And I say this, but in my own heart, there's people that I struggle to understand. If they ever came to faith in Jesus Christ, what would I do? I am not sure. And that's the context of what we're looking at Today, look at the first two verses of Luke 15. Up through this point, he's been Jesus has been doing miracles and telling parables and doing some, you know, talking about the kingdom of God. But here in verses one and two, you have tax collectors and sinners. Now, let me tell you about a tax collector. First of all, you had the Roman the Roman Empire was in charge of everything, so uh, the Israelites weren't in control of their own country. But they had to pay a tax. So if you were uh, the the Caesar decided, hey, we need a little bit of cash for whatever project they wanted to do, so they would tell the governors. And I'm just using these numbers as an example. For example, let's say the Caesar needed $10 million. He would tell his governors, let's say he had 10 we need a million apiece from each of you. So the governors would say, hmm. So the governor would tell the province leaders, hey, the emperor needs $2 million. He doubled it. He'll give a million to the emperor, and what's he going to do with a million? Build a new house, whatever it takes. And then those provincial leaders, so they are told they need $2 million, so they tell their, two, their 10 guys, instead of, you know, uh, uh, 200,000, they tell them, oh, we need 500,000. 
out of their own pockets. And by the time it gets down to the people, the actual tax collectors that were hated, it's been inflated six, seven, eight times. So when they pay taxes to pay all of this other stuff, they are furious because they're paying, they're paying thieves. That was who a tax collector was here in verse 1. Or the sinners. The sinners were the, the people who were of ill repute. They lived in a way. They were the town drunks. They were the prostitutes. They were the people that when you saw them, you walked to the other side of the sidewalk because you didn't even want to be on the same sidewalk as them. You knew who they were. You knew the way they'd live their lives. And Jesus eats with them. That's verse 1. Verse 2, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, those were the pastors, the seminary professors, the people who knew the Bible left and right. They could quote it to you. They knew the middle verse. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners. And doesn't he know who they are? Doesn't he know what they've done? He has no idea. Instead of responding to them, Jesus tells three stories. The three stories, I'm going to shape it a little bit. The three sections are the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son. We call it the prodigal son. But I want you to see, because of these other two, it will show us and surprise us, I think, as to who the lost son really is. Look at verses 3 through 7 with me. First, you see the intensity of the search. In verses 3 through 5, you have this sheep that's been lost, and so the man goes to find it. Now, I want you to pause and turn on your economic mind. Why, does, why do we kind of get weirded out that he would leave the 99 to go search for the one? What's the danger that will happen to the 99? He'll lose them. The economic risk of going to look for that one doesn't make sense to us. Just stick with the 99. Don't leave them. What are you doing? And yet he leaves them to go search for it. Matthew 18 talks about this. John 10 talks about this. And when he finds this sheep, he looks everywhere for it. When he finds it, what does he do to show how excited he is? Does he whack it back to the, to the fold? He carries it. Why? Why would he carry it? Those things are heavy. He loves the sheep. That sheep is not just of economic value. And verse 6, what does he do? He calls his neighbors and friends. Let's have a party. And celebrates with them. If I had ten cows, I don't know if I'd celebrate for having one back. But hey, he does it. And then in verse 7, look at what it says there. There is more joy for the sinner than for the 99 that do not need saving. I've got to be honest. When I read that, the in, my insides kind of go, Ugh. that little word more. There's more rejoicing for that one than for the 99 who stayed. Why? Because most of the time I see myself as one of the ones who stayed. Why, why is he more happy for that one than for me? Does that make sense? Do you see that? Because we know this is talking about the lost and the found. The, we know through the context this is, and it, that little word more, just, I mean, yeah, I should be happy, but more happy? Oh. Look at the next parable. Verses 8 through 10 talks about the lost coin. What does it say? Verse 8, the intensity of the search. I mean, she's looking. A coin was about a day's wages, and so she had 10 of those. And so it, she really needed it. She's a poor woman, it says, and so she only had 10 of these coins. And so she, she even cleans the house. Whoa! Moves the furniture, lights a lamp, lights a candle. So she has to look under the things to see where this coin is. She looks hard. There's an intensity of the search. Same with the intensity of the search for the sheep. Then she has a party, same as with the sheep. She has a party. She calls her friends and her neighbors to rejoice with her. This is constant. And then in verse 10, the eternal significance. If you remember in verse 7, for the sheep, it talked about how there's more rejoicing for the sinner. 
Look at verse 10. There's the rejoicing of the angels. Now, why are the angels happy? Whether you're saved or not doesn't really matter to them. It doesn't affect their existence at all. Why would they be happy? Why would they be celebrating? Their purpose is to glorify. Why would angels be celebrating? They're messengers. That's it. Their purpose is to bring glory to God, to communicate to people. And we really only talk about angels around Christmas, right? (laughs) If the boss is happy, everyone is happy. They're celebrating because God is thrilled that a sinner was restored. And they get it. If God is this happy, we should be, even if I don't understand why. Lost coin, the lost sheep. Now let's look at the lost son, verses 11 to 32. I want you to think about who the younger son is. and The, the sheep and the coin had value, didn't they? You know, the sheep had economic value, and it was, it's better to have 100 than 99, especially if you're projecting. And uh, The coin was important for the poor woman to be able to survive. What kind of value did this younger son have? What did he say? He said, give me my inheritance. If you ask your parent for your inheritance before they've died, what are you telling them? Die. I would rather have your stuff and your money than you. What? What does he do once he gets the money? He doesn't stay nearby. Stay close. No, he gets as far away as he can. He goes to a country where there are hogs. Now think about it in the term of a Jew. Would anywhere in Jewish country raise hogs? No. So he's gone out of the country to get away from his dad. First takes his stuff, gets out of Dodge, right? What does he do with the money? It just says that he wastes it, but in verse 30, his brother sheds a little light into it. He wasted it on prostitutes. Not only is he a bad son, and not only does he hate the family, not only did he leave, he is very, very immoral. But what does the younger son do? He repents. He's far away. He's working with the hogs. He is starving. And suddenly he realizes that to be with his father is better than to be independent. He realizes that his dependence on his family is worth more than any amount of inheritance could give. And so he practices what he's going to say to his father. Look at verse 18 and 19. He practices. He says, okay, I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your higher servants. Believe him. We'll see what he does. So he gives it a practice when he practices. He wants to make sure that he says the right thing when he goes to see his dad. But what's interesting, he says, I've sinned not just against you, but against heaven. Here's the deal. When you do something wrong, sometimes we think, yes, it hurts the person next to me. We realize that it has a horizontal effect. Do you realize that it also has a vertical effect? When you sin, it damages your relationship with the God of the universe. This kid realized that. Not only had he insulted and hurt his father, he had hurt and insulted the God of the universe. That's what your sin does. No matter how small, it hurts that relationship. And so, In all the other parables, there's an intensity of the search, right? They intensely search for the sheep. They intensely search for the coin. Here, in some senses, there's not really... His father doesn't go to look for him that we know. But what does it say? From far off, the father saw him. What do you think that son looked like? He left a rich kid's... A rich kid, right? When he come back, he has nothing. 
No shoes. His beard probably looked even worse than mine does. Harry Samuel. Smells awful. His clothes. How did his father recognize him? His father had been looking for him. He's standing there waiting. What if maybe, no, that's not him. His father sees him from afar off. And what does it say? He ran. Let's jump into the culture again. Uh, in Jewish culture, you wore a skirt that was long. Elders never ran. Do you, do you ever see elders run today? Grandpa, I mean, sometimes they do for their grandkids, but very rarely. I mean, it's got to be something really good, right? It's, there's an understanding that the older you are, you, you, you take life more slowly. You're more, you're more cautious. Uh, besides the aches and pains, I mean, it's the young guys that are running around being crazy, right? But here, not only does the father run, to run in that Judean culture, you had to pull up your skirts and run. To show your legs, even your knees, in Jewish culture was shameful. His father didn't care. His father didn't care which neighbor saw him. He was running to his son because he loved him. And look at the words of the son in verse 21. He gets halfway through the speech he practiced. Only halfway. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He didn't even get to the next section. His father interrupts him and said, bring the best clothing. Bring the ring. Bring the shoes. Let's have a party. Kill the fattened calf. That takes three years to do. At least. His father doesn't care. we got to celebrate. He was dead. Culturally, that son was dead to that family. Everyone around knew that son had, was as good as dead, but he is alive. He was lost, and now he's found. That binds this parable to the two parables beforehand. Now, usually, in most sermons that I've heard, this is where the sermon stops, and we can pray and go home. God saves sinners. Awesome. But there's a second brother. I want us to think about the older brother. Look at verse 25. He's known as the self-righteous brother. Verse 25 talks about how he's working in the field. Every day he remembers that the reason he has to work double as hard is why? Because of the one who left. Every day he's reminded of that fact. Because when you have a certain amount of work and you take one person out, the work doesn't diminish. You still have to do just as much work. Only instead of two people doing it, now there's just one. Every day he remembers that. Verses 26 and 27, he didn't even know the party was going on. Why? Where was he? He was working. He was being a good son, a faithful son, making sure the farm didn't fall under. He had good reasons to be mad. He'd been obedient for years. He'd never had a party. Remember verse 7? How it said there's more rejoicing for the one sinner. Do you remember that? You didn't even give me anything, Dad. And he realizes the way the the younger son wasted the money was immoral. And it had hurt the family. He had every right to... To be angry. But what's the response of the father? And it's amazing because when the older son, when the older brother talks about the younger son, he doesn't say, my brother. He says, your son. You don't even recognize him as part of his relationship. What does the father respond? My son. You've always been with me. You've been faithful. Everything I have is yours. And so he says, we had to celebrate. Or it was necessary. It was fitting to celebrate, but it's in the plural. We had to celebrate. Not just me as a father. We. He's inviting him to join in the celebration. Why? Your brother, he says it there in the text, your brother was alive, was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, and now he's found. And so he invites him to rejoice with him. 
Think about the other three parables. People are invited. Come rejoice. Come rejoice. Come rejoice with us. What was lost is now found. In this parable, that's how it ends. Rejoice with us. What's amazing in the structure, the the dangling question is, what will you do? He doesn't say the angels of heaven are rejoicing. And he doesn't say the Father. He just leaves it there. There's no other verse. So the question is to the Pharisees, will you rejoice when these sinners and these tax collectors are found? Why are we to celebrate? Not because they're going to be perfect, but because the Father celebrates. Here's what's amazing. With that dangling question, which brother needs the hug or the embrace of the Father? The younger brother has received it, right? He's been received back and free. It's the older brother who's on that fence. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He's still mad. And in some sense, he has every right to be mad. But the other parables show us we are called to rejoice when even the worst of the worst sinners comes to faith in Jesus Christ. So the question that it leaves us with is, will you rejoice? Even if the person you hate the most walks through that door. I'm not saying forget everything they've done. But will you rejoice that they've come to faith in Jesus Christ? And I ask you, who's the tax collector? Who's the sinner? Who's the person from your family? Or what did that person do when they were middle school, high school, college age? Even what did their parents do to you, to your family? What will you do? I ask that same question to the pastors in Columbia. With that person who brought them suffering, what will we do? The different thing about Christians isn't that we're perfect. It's not that we forgive right away, because we don't, I don't. It's that we recognize that we should. And we beg God for grace and for strength to do it. And we daily work to try to restore those relationships, because we realize that God's perspective is much better than ours. I have to walk with pastors daily to understand the impact of forgiveness and reconciliation. It's wild. We're that same class. We're looking at Matthew chapter five, and there's a section where it says, "If you bring your offering to the altar, and your brother has something against you, you need to go back and reconcile yourself with that person." What's amazing is Jesus taught that in Galilee. So what he's saying is, you should tra- if you travel six days to give God your offering, and you get there and you realize somebody has something against me, you have to walk back six days before giving your offering. Walk back six days, reconcile yourself with the brother, and then well, that's a three-week commitment. Assuming you guys are able to reconcile like that. Why? Because Jesus cared about forgiveness. It was important to him. How can this happen? It cannot. Unless, one, we seek the embrace of the Father. Not just through biblical knowledge and church attendance and teaching at Sunday school, but the embrace and communion of the Father is an experience you have daily. Is the most important part of your day and throughout your day. Communion with the God of the universe who loved you and called you to himself, when you pray with him, when you read scriptures, is that the most important part? Do you seek the embrace of the Father? You do that, it changes you. Secondly, rejoice at the conversion of others. And For this to happen, you have to be involved in the search. You have to be sharing the gospel, telling other people about the Savior that changes your heart, and trust that he can change. Now, I'm not saying automatically trust that person, especially if they've done you know, some, some really difficult things. But think through, what does forgiveness mean? And why? Why do I need to rejoice? Because the Father rejoiced. It's not that they've earned it. It's because the Father rejoices. So I encourage you to to pray for one another, but also pray for us. I don't know how to answer those pastor's questions. 
They have suffered through so much. And I don't want to just give them an easy answer that's empty. But I do want to point them to the truth of the gospel. And that's just one example. There's so many others. Uh, in, a, in a country that is going through the reparation, the restoration process, pray that God will give myself, my wife, our kids wisdom as to show others what that reconciliation means. And I say that with fear because usually God doesn't do that unless you've experienced it. And I'm afraid of what that would mean. But I believe that eternal center of the gospel is more important than my perspective. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for this father that we see here and the mothers throughout history that have demonstrated what this repentance, this, this <laughs> unconditional love looks like. And God, I pray, even when we struggle through what forgiveness looks like, and I pray for these pastors, even while they struggle through what forgiveness looks like exactly, that you would change our hearts, that we would want to rejoice, even if we don't know how, because we firmly believe that you are rejoicing when a sinner comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Pray us. We pray through the preaching of the word. And we thank you that when we really stop and think about it, at one point we were that younger brother. And even if we are the older brother now, I pray that self-righteousness would not rule in our hearts, but that we'd be astonished at your grace, at your transformation, and that you would be, use us as mediums of forgiveness. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.